Welcome to the How I Became podcast, all about entrepreneurship. Erin, I am so excited to have you on the How I Became podcast today. Thank you so much for joining me. And I'm so excited to have an incredible female founder, the co-founder of Willful and an online platform that makes it affordable, convenient, and easy for Canadians to create legal wills online. Erin, you're a mom of two, including what I think is a four-month-old baby, but you'll correct me if I'm wrong. And with your husband, Kevin, you created Willful back in 2017 after learning firsthand how difficult it can be to manage arrangements after a loved one has passed away. As of today, you're helping what I believe is over 100,000 Canadians with estate planning and documenting across eight of our provinces. And Aaron, what seems to have been a very unsexy business, I think you've created something incredibly powerful and meaningful. So it does mean a lot to me to have you on today. And I'm really excited to jump into your story. And I thought we could start with you, who you are, and how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, well, thank you so much, Kelly, for having me and for that kind intro. Really excited to be here. And uh, yes, I do have a four-month-old. She is my husband, Kevin, on parental leave right now. So um, thankfully, she's not joining the podcast because she can be quite distracting. But uh, yeah, where to start? Well, I think the... You know, I was always someone who knew what I wanted to do in life. I think some people struggle with that. And I always had a plan. My mom worked at Nortel, a big tech company that's no longer around. She was a marketing executive and she had gone to journalism school at Carleton and said, you know, she really parlayed that into a communications and marketing career because it taught her how to be a strong communicator. And so that was my plan, you know, go to Carleton Journalism and then go into marketing or public relations or communications. And so I think up until I graduated school and had uh, I, I, my first full-time job in public relations at a mid-sized agency, I, I was kind of on cruise control. I had achieved the plan. I had that journalism degree. I, I got the job in marketing. And then it was about a year into that. So in, in 2008, right around the time the financial crisis was, was happening, uh, that I had to pause and think about what the trajectory in my career would look like. I had the opportunity to go join a startup as the second employee. And that kind of shifted my world. You know, I had always thought about myself as someone who, like my mom, would kind of climb the career ladder and my ultimate dream in life would be making a six-figure salary, having that corner office. But when presented with the opportunity to join a startup, um, you know, I didn't have an entrepreneurial background. My parents weren't entrepreneurs. So it really was this kind of come to Jesus moment where I had to make that decision. Do I stay on the corporate path or do I do something a little bit more risky, a little bit unknown. And so I'm very grateful to my mom for giving me a great piece of advice at the time, which was, uh, you know, take the chance. Now's the time. You don't have mortgages. You don't have kids, which I very much now do. Um, and the worst that happens is it doesn't work out and you go back and get a job, which you can easily do because you're smart. Uh, so, so yeah, that was kind of what put me on the path to where I am today, almost over 15 years ago. And I've worked in startups and with small businesses ever since. It's interesting because I think what I hear commonly is my parents were entrepreneurs or by by choice or, you know, Im immigrants and had to be entrepreneurs so that I, I just knew I was going to be an entrepreneur as part of who I am. So your story is very unique in that it was kind of down your journey already in your career, that entrepreneurial spirit kind of bit you. And I'm curious how 
you made that transition or how it felt to, you know, go from I want to be a career person in a corporate world to an entrepreneur because the mindset, I think, is quite different between the two. The mindset is very different. And I think ultimately inside of me, there was an entrepreneur. There was someone who was comfortable with risk and who is comfortable with change. I just didn't know that at the time. But entrepreneurship is contagious. You know, I, I wasn't an entrepreneur until I was about 30. I just worked for entrepreneurs and worked with entrepreneurs. And honestly, it was just through osmosis. I just absorbed this mindset that they have around perseverance and, you know, um, being open-minded and resourceful, you know, resourcefulness is something you need to have as a startup employee, but certainly as an entrepreneur to find a way to overcome obstacles and to work within limits. And so, yeah, I think it was just over years. And, you know, I spent time as well on the founding team at Vedicat, the tech publication. And so my day in day out was just interviewing entrepreneurs and I think you can only hear the inspiring story of how someone encountered a problem and decided to build a solution before you say, well, I could do that. <laughs> you know, why can't I encounter a problem and actually decide to solve it? And the first time that I really took that leap was not for, for Willful. It was for a small wine tour company that I uh, built and sold with two friends the county wine tours and you know i now live in prince edward county full-time at the time my parents were just living here and we would go to the wineries and we just saw how close together they all were in proximity but there was no bicycle wine tour company here like there was in niagara and i think before i was exposed to the entrepreneurial mindset i would have said oh yeah maybe someone will do that one day and what a cool opportunity but after being exposed to it for so long i said well wait there's an opportunity why don't we solve it right and so we did. And I think it was a really great way to get my feet wet uh, in terms of actually starting a business from the ground up, even though it was only a quote unquote side hustle and wasn't my kind of full-time gig. It gave me the confidence that, yes, I can do this. I can take a risk. I can, you know, I have the skills and the qualities needed to be able to grow and scale a business. And so that gave me a lot of confidence when it came time to make the bigger decision of, um, of willful. I, I didn't realize that you had the business before, but that's uh, really interesting that you kind of gave yourself, it, I'm sure it could have been huge, but this mini experience on knowing that soon you would be then falling into a much bigger opportunity to start Wellful. Did you have any doubts or like an emotional response to, hey, I had this image, I was going to follow in my mom's footsteps, I was going down this path and now I'm kind of doing a 180. Obviously, there was a lot of inspiration and excitement behind it, but and aside from the fear of starting your own business, I think every entrepreneur has a little bit of that butterfly in the stomach, but also the the fact that you're also changing a plan and you seem like a planning person that you stick to your plan. So how is the emotional side of, of thinking through that? And that's a great question. I mean, I think it was at the time and even now, it was just being grateful that I had people that pushed me out of my comfort zone and that supported that decision. I think a lot of parents expect you to, maybe not today because entrepreneurship is actually a very desirable career path these days. But back then, you know, it was it would have been really easy for my mom, my friends, my my support network to say, stay where you have a steady paycheck, climb the corporate ladder, keep your head down, and eventually it'll pay off. And instead, 
they were very much take the risk. You know, what's the worst that could happen? You, you go get another job. Who cares? You can go do that. No big deal. And so the emotion behind it felt, I felt very uncomfortable. And, and frankly, I mean, I did and still do struggle with imposter syndrome as everybody does, right? And I think it's very easy to look at someone and think, oh, wow, they're so self-assured. I look at entrepreneurs all the time where I'm like, wow, they have it all figured out. But they don't. Everyone beneath the surface is like that, the duck with the legs flailing, but that looks really, really calm above the surface, right? So so I definitely struggled with imposter syndrome. I'm going to work for a startup. Why me? Why would you trust me to be the second employee at your company? What if I screw this up? What if I'm, you know, taking this capital that you've entrusted me with and I'm misusing it or I, I don't prove to be worth my salary? But I think that experience also taught me a lot about the need to be confident in yourself. You know, I'm a smart person. I'm not always going to have the answers. And I remember asking Sarah, my uh, boss, an amazing entrepreneur and my mentor, I remember asking her why she hired me. You know, you hired me to do social media. I don't think I had any experience and I had zero startup experience. And she said something powerful that I still take with me to this day, which is I don't hire people for their you know, their LinkedIn resume. I hire people for resourcefulness. I care less at this stage of my company about whether you have all the answers and more about the attitude of being able to find answers and figure it out on your own. And that's something that's really stood with me as I've now hired my own teams. It's having people with the attitude of, I don't know everything, but I'm, I'm going to be resourceful enough to kind of figure it out. I want to talk about that a little bit as you've gone from employee to being an amazing leader and it sounds like you had an amazing mentor and boss to help kickstart where you were headed which sounds like a a woman in leadership as well I'd love to understand how you have felt as a woman starting your own business yeah I mean it's certainly a different life you know, um, being an entrepreneur, especially someone who who owns a business with their spouse and our household is entrepreneurial. You know, it's not like one of us has a job at, a, at the government and a pension that we can rely on. You know, we're both kind of betting our future on this company. I thought I would be, if you had asked me when I was 23, I would have told you that I would feel uncomfortable. But I had discovered that both Kevin and myself were, were quite comfortable with risk, were quite comfortable with kind of sacrificing in order to kind of to build our dream. And particularly, uh, particularly around having children, I thought being an entrepreneur would be a detriment. You know, how am I going to be able to step away from this company? I'm so closely tied to it. I go above and beyond for this company every day. How am I actually going to be able to not only enjoy some time off with my children, but also balance everything, right? But I think we've come out of a dangerous period in entrepreneurship this kind of hustle porn era of startups where it was seen as a badge of honor to work 24-7 and to drink 17 cups of coffee a day and to not have time to even step away from your desk to eat and to sacrifice all personal priorities, your mental health, your physical health. And I think we are in a much healthier era of entrepreneurship where we actually see personal lives as and rest as imperative to be able to build successful businesses. And it's also my job as a leader to espouse that, to live that, to set that example from the top. So I think that's really helped. And in addition, COVID actually opened up a new chapter of our lives where, you know, we were living in a 600 square foot condo in Toronto and going into our willful office every day. And now we live full time in Prince Edward County. We have a lot more space in terms of our house, in terms of our backyard, green space around us. And we ultimately have a lot more flexibility. 
You know, we lead willful now with the ethos of, I don't care if you work nine to five. Uh, you know, everyone has their own goals. Everyone's accountable. We're completely virtual now. And so, you know, we care less about what hours your butt is in your seat, ourselves included, and more about the accountability you have to your goals and the work you're producing and the value that it has to the business. And so that has actually been my secret weapon as I navigate two parental leaves and returning to the business. It's, I can make my own schedule. I pick my daughter up every day from daycare before 5 p.m. Uh, I'm able to take some, some time to shift things around. Uh, and that, I think, is the most powerful asset that an entrepreneur has, is flexibility and autonomy to shape their lives, their working life, and their personal life the way that they want. And you do not have that opportunity when you are working nine to five for the government. Even though you can take an 18-month mat leave, which I certainly could not. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I know you're back now and that's a fast mat leave, but you're right. Like you have the opportunity to play with your own schedule. Do you, are there, are there tactics or ways that you help to have that trickle down to the rest of the org? Is it just by, you know, they see you doing this, so it allows them to feel more comfortable because the big boss is rearranging their schedule, but at the end of the day, get everything done that needs to, or are there strategies that you guys have to help um, embed that in the culture? It's a bit of both. I do think that leaders at companies set the tone whether they know they are doing so, right? If you have a CEO that does not ever take vacation or comes to work sick or sends emails at 3 a.m., you are sending a signal that that's the cultural norm at your company and other people feel uncomfortable deviating from those cultural norms. So I am very cognizant of the importance of me living the, the policies that willful and setting examples for the rest of the team. But then we also have kind of intentionally built in those policies that make it clear and have them documented. So, for example, we have a work from anywhere policy that allows people to, you know, go to Columbia and work from there for a week or, you know, and I took advantage of that when our daughter, our first daughter was young and, and it worked from Europe for a few months one summer. We do have a kind of core hours policy that outlines what hours we, teams should be online with each other. But we also have employees right. in five time zones. So it's not just about flexibility. It's also about practicality and logistics of someone in British Columbia looking to meet with someone on the East Coast. Um, and so by documenting those and by also tying them back to our values, you know, our core values at Willful are things like empowerment and accountability and agility. And so, you know, we live those through those policies that kind of say, as long as you're accountable to your work, I'm not paying you for your time. I'm paying you for your output, right? And so I should care. It's, and it's kind of challenging those norms, right? We've all worked at places where, do they really care about the right things? Does it really matter if you're physically in the office to do your job? Does it really matter if you're in your, at your desk by 9 a.m. on the dot? No, what your employer really should care about is what impact are you having on the company? What type of how are you adding to the company's culture in a positive way? But I think so many leaders are conditioned to care about the wrong metrics that unfortunately they lose great people by enforcing things that frankly, I don't think matter at all. I love the mindset of focusing on the metric, not the hours that someone's working. It's, it's so important. As an employee, it's also scary because it means you actually have to put in pocket and show up at your desk and like move your mouse around to make it look like you're working. Yeah. Um, if, if you have real goals that you're trying to achieve, 
Um, it's nerve wracking, but it also means in a startup environment, you get to have true impact. You really get to move the needle and make a difference. I mean, it, it always brings to mind the TV show, The Office, right? I mean, how many employees across North America get away with doing very little, but optically they are super effective because they're sitting at their desk and they're, you know, available on, you know, Teams chat or whatever it is. And I think that's really um, indicative of the larger root problem, which is that we pay people for time. We don't pay people for output. And if we actually made that shift, employees would be more fulfilled because you wouldn't be sitting around twiddling your thumbs. Um, and employers would be better off because we'd be focusing on people that have true impact. And, uh, you know, I, I do think that we're seeing that shift happen. I don't know, though. I, I mean, I've so, I read something the other day about how so many employers are actually going back into the office post-COVID. And it made me question whether we really learned anything at all about how effective we can be virtually. And Willful has no plans to go back to the office, especially now that Kevin and I have moved to a rural area. Um, and we do run so effectively virtually that it just makes me question, you know, what the motivation is behind employers that are forcing the, the return to office. Is it because you have an expensive lease? Or is it truly because you think that this will have a more positive impact on your your business? I don't know. But you know, the expensive lease, that would be a really lame uh, reason. And I can't imagine around the board table that conversation being had. But who knows? Perhaps that is what's happening. Um, but on that point, are there... So my job, I'm... Uh, it's a hybrid. So I work from home, but I, I also go into the office, which I love. Um, it's very flexible. Is there an element of in real life or is it inevitable? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. And I, I totally love those hybrid environments where the focus is on, okay, when you come into the office, you're not just sitting on a virtual call. You're actually having meaningful in-person discussions. You're doing things like brainstorms that are absolutely more effective in-person we are fully virtual and actually we only have a couple employees in Toronto. So we are pretty distributed across Canada and in five or six provinces. Uh, so we have invested in, in one in-person annual retreat, which we do every June. Last year it was in Cancun, Mexico. Uh, and that's really the opportunity for everyone to get together in person, to form those bonds, to have those kind of working sessions. And then we have a mid-year virtual retreat in December, which is more about, uh, you know, obviously bringing the team together uh, virtually because it's very expensive to bring the entire company somewhere because of how distributed we are. And then we have an amazing um, ops specialist, Rogan, who's in charge of kind of the virtual team culture. So that includes things like every Monday we have a team stand up. Um, every Friday we have a weekly wins where everyone shares a win from the week and we see a five minute demo from someone on a project they're working on. We do monthly town halls where every team presents on their kind of wins and challenges from the prior month. Uh, we do this Friday. We have a pet show and tell on Friday. Um, so, we, you know, Rogan's really great at kind of fostering those virtual connections as much as possible. But of course, there's an element that can't be solved virtually. So we also give teams budgets to meet up in person, you know, on a cadence that makes sense. So the marketing team, for example, filmed our new TV commercial in, in the fall. And so that was an opportunity for them to kind of get together and do some strategic planning in person. I don't know that we've solved that, um, that element of it, but I think it is working well for us. And ultimately, 
you know, if you're someone that thrives in a virtual environment, you're going to gravitate towards something like Willful. If you're someone that needs to be in the office and have that structure in those in-person water cooler chats, it's just not going to be the right, right culture or place for you. And people, I think, will self-select towards one of those environments. It's almost, I mean, a benefit of COVID that now there is an option and you got to taste both worlds and figure out what suits you and then make a choice based on that. Um, I do love the like bursting idea where everyone's getting together in Cancun or wherever you guys choose for it to be um, because it is that in-person connection that sticks and you get to bring that home with you when you're working virtually. And then, yeah, I I love the virtual life. I think it, it's the way to be. But I want to try and dig into Will Bolt itself a little bit and maybe going right back to the beginning of the, the inspiration for starting the company and uh, I believe you mentioned it was Kevin. That's kind of the idea guy. Yeah, well, Kevin's definitely the ideas guy. I may be an entrepreneur, but I'm certainly not the person that had that long list of ideas in my head. Um, and he doesn't have a traditional business background. His background is in trades, but he's always been that entrepreneurial person to the point where he used to call me the dream killer because he'd come home from his job at the cement plant and be like, okay, I had this great idea today. I'm like, well, you know, as a tech journalist who interviews startup founders, that's been done or this is... The problem with that one, and um, it was after his uncle passed away unexpectedly, and he saw the impact on his family of him not having had the kind of proper conversations around funeral and burial wishes, and then subsequently us going out to, to get our own wills and estate planning documents in order and seeing the cost and the inconvenience of going to a lawyer's office. That was when he kind of said, you know, there's got to be a better way, and came to me with the idea for willful and. He actually pursued it on his own. I was running a, a mid-sized or a boutique marketing agency at the time that worked with tech companies, uh, which I ran for about five years. Uh, so I kind of said, great, you know, quit your job, pursue this. I, I'll pay the bills. We don't have a mortgage. We don't have kids. Like, this is the time to do it. And, you know, let's see if we can get this off the ground. And so, yeah, it was really him in the early days, just trying to cold call estate lawyers and get them to work with us and to try to find a developer who could build the site, raise a little bit of friends and family money. We don't have any rich aunts and uncles, so it was very small checks, but it was a really great vote of confidence that allowed him to get it to, to day one. And I was kind of behind the scenes as an, an investor, advisor, and obviously personal support person for the entrepreneur. Uh, but it wasn't until about a year into uh, Willful's journey when I decided to join as CEO. And it was really just a product of kind of feeling like I had done everything I could do at the agency and being ready for the next challenge. And I had no intention of working with Kevin, joining Willful. Thought it was great, but just thought, you know, better keep that arm's length. But when I actually made a list of all of the things that I loved in an opportunity, it was managing people, growing a brand from the ground up, you know, focus on storytelling, something that was mission driven that I felt good that, you know, I was doing something good for humanity. I could sleep at night instead of just, you know, selling another trinket. Um, and so Kev kind of looked at me and said, you know, that Willful checks every single one of these boxes, right? And you should just come be CEO. So that was that. And yeah, that was uh, almost five years ago. And I haven't looked back since. And it's been an incredible journey. How has it been working as a couple and running the business together? I imagine that was a, a big shift in your relationship. 
Yeah, I mean, I won't, I, I will never say it's been all sunshine and roses because I think anyone that says that about their marriage, let alone working together while they're married, is is lying. Um, and Ken and I are very different. You know, you kind of called it out earlier, Kelly. I am very type A. I'm very organized. I'm very productive in my personal and professional life. Ken is the creative. He is the guy that is dreaming up in the clouds about different ideas. He is not someone who has a million to-do lists or who is hyper-organized. And so I think that is the biggest challenge that we've faced over the years, but also the reason why we complement each other so well. If you had two type A organized people that didn't have that creative side, I don't think you'd have a company or I don't think that you'd have those big product vision. So, you know, we've kind of learned what we should each own in the business, what our zones of genius are and, and where we can add the most value. And ultimately, we don't actually work together a lot day to day. Obviously, he's on parental leave right now, so we're not working together at all beyond board meetings and things like that. Um, but even when he was in the business, you know, I'm very focused on the operations, fundraising, investor relations, storytelling and PR. And my right-hand person is really our COO, Julia, who compliments me working with finance and legal. And Kev really has always been focused on more kind of the innovation aspect um, and kind of product development and market research and keeping an eye on what our peers are doing. So we don't, we didn't have a ton of, of crossover. What I will say is I love running a business with my spouse because I never have to explain who someone is at the end of the day when I'm telling a story. I never have to justify why I might have to open my laptop at 8 p.m. after the girls go to bed to finish something. And I love that we're both on this journey together. I frankly would never want to have any job in the future that Kevin wasn't involved in because I love being able to share that aspect of our lives together. It's really special. I'm sure very unique and a lot of hard work, but it's amazing that you guys are still like growing. Your family seem to be very happy and having a lot of success with your business. I'm sure it's been um, an unbelievable journey. We could probably talk just a bit, but it's really nice to hear that that has been a success story. Well, well, I won't lie. I mean, listen, it is like the duck analogy of the legs going, but if you saw the morning routine and the evening routine in our house, it's very chaotic, but I would say we're incredibly happy, we're incredibly in love, and we're also, I think we have learned how to coexist in the business and work together effectively over the years. Yeah, and it's worth it. My husband and I, well, we were just dating at the time. We started an apparel business together. Nothing, nothing came of it, but it was really in our relationship. and It was incredibly difficult, but it taught us so much about our relationship, and I feel like it just cemented us because we learned how we work in every facet of our lives and it just made made everything click so i know it can i know the fights and the frustration that can come of it but also how amazing at the end of the day is to see something that you're building together both family and business so special i did want to talk about dragon's den and hear about your experience bringing the idea to dragon's den with michelle roman on how how you got there, how you felt about it, um, and what happened post-Dragon's Den. Yeah, I mean, such a fun chapter. I was, uh, I think, four or five months pregnant with our first daughter, Emmy, at the time. And, you know, we always get the question, were you super nervous going into the den? And listen, I'm someone who, I love Shark Tank. I love Dragon's Den. I listen to the podcast pitch all the time religiously. I love hearing entrepreneurs pitch their business. 
And so, it, and I'm also a professional public speaker. So yes, I had a leg up in that I'm very comfortable presenting. But I think the biggest takeaway that I've had from my public speaking side of my career is the importance of preparation. And so we really looked at that Dragonstone opportunity as we need to be so overprepared when we go into the room that we could probably deliver our pitch while asleep. <laughs> You know, and so that's the approach we took. So when we walked into the room, I would actually say I was way less nervous going on Dragon's Den than I was getting up in front of some of the crowds that I've spoken in front of, simply because we would, you know, be walking around Prince Edward County, practicing our pitch back and forth. We drafted the 50 questions that we knew we'd get asked by them or could be asked because we'd watched the, the show for years and we had our, even our answers practiced multiple times. We did mock segments in front of our friends that we asked to be Kevin O'Leary and to challenge us and in front of the company. So when we actually walked into the room, there was no question that we were asked that we hadn't anticipated. And I felt like we, we were really prepared going into that. Is it still nerve wracking when the lights are on you? Absolutely. Um, but we we knew that we were going in as prepared as we could be. And I think that came off in the segment. You know, we we had answers to everything. We we felt confident in our communications. And ultimately, we were able to, to score a deal with Michelle, which, you know, the question is always, did she actually invest? And I know a lot of those deals fall apart. I know sometimes people go on the show just for publicity. We were actually fundraising. We did want money. And so, yes, Michelle is an investor. She is a very busy person. Um, she is certainly not active in the business all the time, but she's someone that if I text her and say, can you do this? She always does it. She's always keeping us top of mind and pinging us to say, hey, I saw this thing. Do you want an introduction? So yeah, it's been, it was such a positive experience. Very true to TV. I hate when I read those articles about, you know, The Bachelor that are like, this is, it's all fake. Um, it was very, very much what you see on TV except the filming experience in the den is more like 45 minutes because, you know, they edit it down to be eight, 10 minutes, of course. But otherwise, very, very positive experience. And they actually, the following year, did a Where Are They Now segment with us where they came to our company retreat in person, filmed us at home with our daughter. And it was really cool to see, okay, 12 months after the den, where are they? It's a huge accomplishment in itself. It's also really nice, I'm sure, for the two of you, when you do to look back on the experience and have a checkpoint one year later to actually see the progress. Cause I think so many entrepreneurs forget to look back at how far they come because you're always looking forward. Um, but that kind of forces you to be like, yeah, we've come a really far way and we've done a lot with the opportunity we were given. Uh, but I am curious from that initial, uh, raise that you guys did, um, what that investment went into and how that helped grow the company. Yeah, I mean, I think you really have this uh, this choice when you're building a business. Do you want to bootstrap, aka do you want to not take external funding? Do you want to fund through revenue or maybe grow more slowly but own 100% of the pie? Or do you want to go the external investment route where you're giving up a chunk of your company in exchange for capital that can help to fuel the growth faster? And we chose the latter uh, to take investment both from friends and family in the early days, but since then we've raised pretty much every type of investment you could you could think of from angel investment to venture capital, government grants, uh, and and even funding from institutions like Baycrest Hospital. So yeah, that in and of, we could talk about that for hours on a, a different episode, but that is definitely the most challenging part of growing a business is how do you fund it? And if you're funding through revenue, that's that's hard just in a different way than 
going out and knocking on investor doors and getting beaten down with no's over time. You get a very thick skin. Uh, and realistically, I mean, in our business, we really only spend money because we're software business. We don't have the cost of physical goods. We don't have to pay for a factory of manufacturing or an office space. So for us, our biggest expenditure is our people, the team, uh, and then kind of marketing because we're direct to consumer. And so we do need to get in front of large audiences. And so that's really what all of our investment dollars have gone into over the years is you know, um, hiring people so we can build out our product and improve it over time and hire great marketing people and customer service reps and software engineers. Um, and then also kind of uh, advertising and promotion spend. So as I mentioned, we run TV commercials. We do a lot of, you know, paid marketing, but we also invest a lot in, in content marketing and PR and, and other channels. As you invest in, in the marketing and bringing these things to life, I'm curious about the consumer side of it in any story that have kind of moved you or inspired you that continue to like push, you know, your motivation forward. I know I've heard from all entrepreneurs that, you know, the, the motivation time is very difficult because you just have to keep grinding every day, even with the breaks and, you know, making time for yourself is still a grind. So are there stories or things that um, give you a bit of motivation or inspiration on the harder days? Yeah, I mean, I think at the core... To be an entrepreneur, you have to be in love with the problem you're solving. Because if you're not, and I know that sounds cliche and people always say that, but it's true. You know, if you're not passionate about what you're doing, you're never going to make it as an entrepreneur, which is why, you know, we've had copycats over the years or other people that thought, oh, I could sell wills online. And it always, to me, goes back to great, let them, you know, execution is everything when you're an entrepreneur. And a huge part of that is how passionate you are about the problem you're solving. And I always say this internally, externally, like I don't have a next job, you know, I'm not on the career ladder. Willful is my life, right? Other than willful, my family is the most important thing in my life, but I live and breathe this company. And um, I think it goes back to, for us, the value of purpose. You know, like I said, we truly feel, and, and based on the personal experience we had with Kevin's uncle, we feel like our product helps people. Having a will, every time someone buys their product and creates their will, they are relieving burden on their family. They are making a tough time easier. They are thinking about and having discussions about their end-of-life wishes, which is so important. And we found other ways to bake purpose in. For example, our legacy giving program, where you can leave a gift to charity in your wills. And we've partnered with great organizations like Sick Kids to, to help them influence their donor base to leave gifts in their will. Uh, and then we've also committed 1% of the company's equity to Stick Kids Hospital through the Upside Foundation, which is an amazing organization. So, yeah, I feel like on a few different levels, I feel like there is a bigger mission. There's a great purpose behind the company. Uh, and then also we're just very passionate about the space. And so that keeps us going. Doesn't mean I don't have a glass of wine after a very hard day or have those days where I'm like, wouldn't it be nice to work for Dunder Mifflin and to literally just push paper around my desk all day? But those days are very few and far between. And I, we have a, a joke at our leadership team. Every time something bad happens, a partnership falls apart, you know, at the 11th hour, someone leaves who's a rock star at Willful, um, you know, an investor says no, any other setback, I always say, oh, I'll put it in the book, right? Because no one wants to read a memoir about an entrepreneur where everything was just sunshine and roses. You want to hear about those challenging times and how you overcame them. So I have a long list of 
things to put in my book um, that didn't seem ideal at the time, but will only add to that story later on. Well, I'm going to read that book one day um, and see where, you know, it, it's all the no's, I think, that that ultimately get us the yes that made all the difference and made sense. Yeah. Um, but you, one of the things I was curious about is, and I, I kind of touched on it in the beginning, but your leadership style or the culture of the company and how that evolved. Yeah. I mean, I think when I was running my agency, I, I learned through that experience that I am a very empathetic person and I bring that empathy into my leadership style. I genuinely care about the people that, that work for me. I want to know about their personal lives. I am not someone who can just join a meeting and get into it. I need to hear about your weekend, your cat, your, you know, your new house before I can get any work done. I'm just that person who really wants to get the joy out of building personal relationships. And that's why we'll hold also 20 people, not 200 people is I, we intentionally are growing it at a pace where it still feels small and, um, and we can have those relationships with people. Um, and I used to think that that was a bad thing. You know, I, I actually had a business coach and I was like, you need to make me more mean. I need to be more like the men that I see running businesses who are yelling and screaming and getting all these great results. And he said something that really changed my perspective and that I've brought into my leadership style now, which is empathy is your superpower. Nobody wants to work for the a-hole who's screaming at them. And do you really think that gets better results out of people? Maybe for a month, but then they have that scar tissue and they're going to be looking for other jobs in no time. If you can actually create an environment where people feel good about coming to work, they feel valued, they feel like the work that they're doing has meaning, they're not only going to go above and beyond for you, they're going to stay longer. And frankly, they're going to enjoy it a lot more than they would. And so that really kind of fundamentally changed my outcome and or the uh, I perceived my own weakness of empathy, quote unquote, and really reframed it as a superpower. And I actually think this is such a generalization, but women tend to have a lot more of an empathetic leadership style. And some of the people I most admire in the Canadian entrepreneurship space, like Joanna from NYX, Megan from Shift Club, they are all kind of empathetic leaders. And I don't think that's an accident. So, so yeah, that's really how I've shifted my leadership style. But I would say there's a caveat. Empathy does not exist without accountability. I can be the nicest, most lovely leader, but ultimately you still have to be accountable to your role, to your goals, to providing an, an, a positive impact on the business. Otherwise, you know, you don't have a place in the organization, which has led to us making tough decisions. I don't think empathetic leadership means not making tough decisions or not doing what's best for the business. Yeah, empathy, not weakness. It doesn't exactly. mean you have to let people walk all over you. You're still, you still have to make strategic business choices and put the business first, but you're, you're not constantly screaming down on people and making them feel small. Um, to your point, I think, having um paying for people's impact not their time feeds into that as well i don't know that you need to like, discipline people and focus impact not having them at their desk all day because they want to showcase their work and re um unmeaningful difference um even with the site like the number of employees and not just having a bunch of people to show that the business is big it's not really a metric that it was successful anymore. In another episode, someone was saying when they first started the business or started in, 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 you know, in the startup world, 
hit mindset of what does success look like was how much money did you raise from VC? How many people do you have on your team? And there was one other, I can't remember what it was now, but you like, and then once you start the business and you start growing, you realize those are not the metrics that you should be focusing on. There's so much, so many better indicators of what success is, but, um, and maybe this is shifting in the entrepreneur world. Yeah, that that resonates so much. I mean, I couldn't have said it better myself. I I think a lot of it is the tech media and depictions of entrepreneurship in pop culture and just these truisms that used to exist. You don't have to care about being profitable. You know, the number of people that you have on your team is an indicator of success. I definitely subscribe to those things. And as a journalist, I think I perpetuated those beliefs by covering funding rounds and talking about companies that were hiring faster versus shining a spotlight on that really great profitable bootstrap business over there that actually is a better business than the one that just loses right. a lot of money and just scales for no reason, right? And spends VC dollars. And actually the, the most recent financial downturn was very indicative of that. You saw a lot of those big, well-capitalized businesses that were those VC rocket ships struggle because they weren't running profitable businesses and they couldn't raise more capital to cover that burn rate on an ongoing basis versus companies that are more focused on profitability as a key metric who were able to kind of weather that storm. So it's definitely changed our mindset around what success looks like. And when we look at our long-term growth, it is more focused on profitability and stability and, you know, growing more slowly and rejecting some of those tech bro metrics that I think dominated the news cycle for, you know, the early 2010s. Like the long-term sustainable growth instead of the growth hacking. I, I wanted to touch like future facing and maybe the industry but also Willful itself, what excites you the most? The biggest thing I'm excited about is seeing Wills go digital. Right now, in every province except British Columbia, you have to print a will on paper and sign it with a pen in order for it to be legally valid, which is completely antiquated and doesn't reflect the ability to buy a house online and do any number of other high-value transactions or legal contracts online. So I'm very hopeful that the legislation will change in other provinces and that Willful will essentially be able to own that end-to-end process from helping you generate your documents to helping you execute them and ultimately helping you store not just your will, but other estate planning documents. So that's kind of, and then I'm also really excited about the potential for AI to impact what we're doing. You know, I think some, some people probably look at AI and think, how does this threaten my business? And I look at it and say, what is the opportunity here? Can we use an AI assistant to help you under, to help understand your personal situation and recommend clauses that should be in your will? You know, can we use AI to generate, you know, certain estate planning documents instead of um, using our kind of our existing software structure? Uh, So I think there's a lot of excitement around that. And then just personally, I mean, I'm really excited to, to, be a mom and to see my my girls grow up and to run a business that allows me to be present for them as well as present in the business and to kind of continue to be a champion for entrepreneurs starting families, work-life balance, being able to have rest and vacations while also running a really successful, uh, profitable business and kind of continuing to speak out against those tech bro policies and mindsets that I think are very poisonous. 
Totally. And it's, it's as you talk about being a mom and obviously how important that is to you, it's also amazing for your daughters to grow up seeing their mom, I mean, mom and dad working together, but like kick-ass boss mom leading a business and still while growing a company, having time for them and being present for them is special. And I know probably in our generation, parents who had those big careers weren't around as much. And it's really special to see that you can have the best of both worlds. And it's not going to be perfect, right? It's, you know, my mom, you're right. She traveled a lot. And, you know, it's funny when I look back, I don't think, wow, my mom wasn't there for X thing. I think, wow, I'm so lucky I had an example of this really strong career person that imbued this sense of ambition and made me want to do big things in my own career. And she was always there when it mattered. And we're extremely close now, um, you know, the best of friends. And so, you're right. I hope that is the legacy that I leave for my children is, you know, inspiring them to have a big career, but also showing them that career is second important to your family. You know, when when I think about my own family, while dad might be working a lot, it was if you're when you're present, are you present? Are you really there? And that makes a world of difference. Um, But hopefully with where things are going with work-life balance it allows more opportunity for those meaningful for the moments but i like the point about inspiration like inspiring them as well to see um family number one and also look at this incredible company that i you know that we're building or have built well maybe they maybe they'll be my next software engineer who knows exactly cably or there'll be some like They'll they'll leave the AI team because it's going to be a totally different world of the future. Who knows? Yes, love it. So, in the wrap up, two questions: What are some of the myths that you were told when you first started, or as an entrepreneur, that you want to dispel for future uh, future founders? Really good question. I mean, yeah, I think one of the myths was that it's detrimental to work with your spouse. You know, I think a lot of, there's a perception that actually, you know, you should keep your co-founder arm's length. It should be some stranger you met at a business school. And uh, I definitely reject that and have had a really positive experience and actually think it's better for the business that we're so closely tied together. Uh, And then I think another myth is just that you have to go to business school to launch a business. You know, I've never done my MBA. I do not plan to. And I think the best education in the world, bar none, over university, over anything else, is starting a business and just doing it and going through the motions. So, yeah, I think those are two myths. Those are very strong ones. I appreciate those ones. Last question. Um, Probably the most difficult question of them all. But as you know, my podcast is called How I Became. And the idea is that how I became fill in the blank, whatever you're becoming as a founder, as a mom, as an entrepreneur. So if you were to name your episode, How I Became, what would you call this episode? I guess, you know, how I became an accidental entrepreneur, right? This idea of having this plan for my life and deviating from that and falling into this other wonderful path. I think about it like that movie Sliding Doors with Gwyneth Paltrow, where she you know, goes through this sliding door and has this parallel version of her life. I see this other version of me that's sitting in that big PR agency corner office and she could also be happy, but I'm so glad that this is the version of my life that I'm living and um, and that it turned out not the way that I thought it would. 
Yeah, incredible. Thank you so much, Erin, for coming on the podcast today. Congrats on growing such an amazing company that is making a difference for so many Canadians. Congrats on your new baby and your family. Um, the commercial that you guys uh, just created and, and everything in between, really special what you're doing. And um, it's nice to see another female being a really great leader and another um, individual for young entrepreneurs to look up to. So I thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing your story. Well, thank you for being a great interviewer, for taking the time to speak with me and um, yeah, for shining a spotlight on people across all industries who are making a difference. How I Became a Bluemex Podcast is hosted by Kelly Yafet and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. For more How I Became content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemex.io to join us on Discord.